Psalm chapter 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Suppose we were to put on a show here called Piney's Got Talent. And I asked for auditions and have you made a list of the top 10 talents that you have, things that you really excel at. I think I would be impressed, maybe shocked by some. It would be interesting to be sure. But I think I'm fairly confident that what would, one thing that would not be on any of our lists of things that we excel at would be sadness. I don't think any of us would say, well, I am really good at being sad. I don't think we'd say, we wouldn't say that for two reasons. One, that's weird. Okay, we don't think of that as a talent. We don't normally brag on ourselves or other people saying, man, they are just killing it at, be, at grieving, right? But I think more importantly, more telling, the reason why we wouldn't put sadness, being sad on the list of things we're good at is because we're not. I'm saying this generally speaking, maybe not down to the person, but by and large, we are not very good at being sad. This world is often dark. Life is hard, and there is pain. There is struggle. There is suffering and sorrow and strife, more than enough to go around. But we don't always respond with a right and healthy sorrow. I don't think we do sadness very well, but just in case no one has ever told you this before, maybe I'll be the first. It is okay to be sad. It really is. It's okay. It's not going to destroy you. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean something's wrong with you or that you're sinning. It is okay to be sad. In fact, being sad sometimes is the most appropriate, the healthiest, the most God-honoring way to respond to a situation. If you are being in a financially tight and uncertain place, having chronic pain or other illness or issues health-wise, daily struggling with besetting and entangling sin, constantly dealing with difficult relationships, fighting mental illness, being a caregiver of others with big needs or seemingly incessant needs, processing the grief of loss or loneliness. All of these things in and of themselves and more would be enough to overwhelm us. But when they last for not days but weeks and months and on into years, it can be downright unbearable. How long, O Lord, David says, how long will it last forever? And many of you I know are dealing with more than one of these things. And you have been for a long time. For some of you may see an end in sight, but for others you don't. 
So what do you do? How do you respond? How should you respond to all of this grief and these struggles? Should you pray? Asking God to change things, to make your circumstances different and better? Sure. And should you work to bring change and seek for help when needed and appropriate and possible? Absolutely. Why not? Absolutely, right? But what do you do with your emotions? What do you do with your grief? What should you do with your fears and your frustrations? What should you do with your sorrows? Should you just grin and bear it, telling yourself to buck up and just get over it already? No, don't do that. That doesn't end well. What then? Should we whine and complain? Grow hard-hearted and bitter? No, don't do that either. Well, then what? How should we respond? How should you respond when your life is hard and it seems to go on and on and on? And the struggles don't let up. The sorrows are real. How do you navigate? How should you process your emotions? In a word, lament. You must lament. What if one of the ways we strive for joy is by crying? What if one of the ways that we work toward inner peace is by embracing our unsettledness? What if one of the ways that we fight for faith is by acknowledging the reality of our desperation? What if one of the ways we glorify God is by throwing ourselves at his mercy? What if one of the best kinds of praying is lamenting? There are 150 psalms in the Psalter, this book of collection of songs, and nearly 70, that's over 45% of all the psalms are psalms of lament. You might think of the psalms as being songs where you give praise and thanksgiving to God, and indeed that is much the case, and yet nearing half of all the psalms are psalms of lament. Psalm 13 included. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is a psalm of lament. But it's not just some personal diary entry for David. This was a psalm put to music. It was added to the collection of the psalms, meant to be sung not just privately and individually, but corporately by the people of God as they worshipped him. This tells us two very important things. One, lamenting is worship. Number two, David here, he wasn't just being vulnerable and honest about his own struggles and his fight for faith and his pursuit of joy. He was also wanting to help others and to teach others to worship God by fighting for faith and pursuing joy in him. He was wanting writing this to help them to lament. And so that's what I want to do for you today. I want to help you to lament. Because in order to fight for faith and pursue joy, we must learn to lament. If we are to worship God as we fight for faith and pursue joy most effectively, we must also learn to lament. 
perhaps you're here today and you're saying, I, I just don't really personally feel the need to lament right now. I have uh, much going well in my life, no reason for real sorrow. If that's the case, then praise the Lord. Like, give him thanks for that. This is his grace. Be grateful for it. But know this, if you live for very much longer at all, you will face sorrow. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Don't be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's common. It's common to all people, especially the people of God, because the world, our own flesh, and the devil are against us. And we then. There will be struggles. There will be. It's an inevitable reality that we will face sorrows and struggles of many kinds. And so because that's going to happen to you, I want to prepare you and to help you to learn to lament so that you can process these things when they come. And besides that, it's not, it's not only about you. Your life is connected to other people. There are people in your home or there are people at your workplace or in your extended family. There are people in your church who are struggling today. And they need to lament, and so your job is to help them to lament. So I want to both help you and help you help them to lament. But if we are to learn to lament, we have some hurdles to get over because that's not comfortable for us. We're reluctant to lament. We must learn why. This is really going to be the bulk of my message today is I want to help you to understand why it is we're so reluctant to lament so that we will learn not just what it is, but learn to do it. The reasons why we are so uncomfortable and so reluctant to lament are three. The first is that we don't really know what it means to lament. I think we are afraid to do it. We're uncomfortable and reluctant to do it because we really don't know what it means to do it. So allow me to define it for you. Lamenting is the sincere supplication of a desperate person amid struggle and sorrow. It is... When you sincerely supplicate, you, you, you call out to God because you're desperate in the middle of your struggles and your sorrows. And I really want this to help you, so I'm going to kind of uh, clarify a few words from this definition and show you how I get it from Psalm 13 so that we will be better lamenters and learn to do it well. The first of these words I want to clarify for you is the word sincere. Lamenting is the sincere supplication. By sincere, I mean being honest, being vulnerable, being, being real and raw with your thoughts, your feelings, your fears, and your desires. I mean, God already knows everything you're thinking, everything you're feeling, so it dishonors Him and does you no good to hide it from Him, right? Look with me at Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. David prays, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Here we find in the first two verses the questioning cry of the long sufferer. That is the one who has been suffering for a long time. How long, O oh Lord? How long? It's all day long. And forever? Will it last forever? But notice the first word, he, the first sentence or phrase here is, Will you forget me forever? He's saying, God, it must be some accidental oversight that I'm still in this hard and dark place. The reason why I'm here and you haven't rescued me yet, it, it, you must have just accidentally forgotten about me. I'm still here. 
Or he says, perhaps it's not that you have accidentally forgotten, but maybe you have intentionally rejected me. How long will you hide your face from me? Like you're doing this on purpose now. That, that must be it. God, it feels like you are pushing me away and you won't let me see you. And this idea of hiding your face is the opposite of when God's face, he makes his face to shine on his people. It's for their good. He's saying here, God, if your face shines on me, is for me, then it means that you, you, I'm favored by you and you approve of me and you give me blessing, but I feel none of it. I see none of it. My experience is one of darkness and you're hiding yourself from me. That's how I feel, God. He's being sincere, vulnerable, and honest. In verse 2, he says, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? This isn't some intermittent problem, God. I'm dealing with it all day, every day. And who do I go to for help? The only person I have to take counsel with is me. I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and coming back to me. I'm taking counsel. I'm trying to understand this and plan a way out of this all by myself. It's not working. I feel like I'm alone in this. In fact, I'm, maybe I'm not alone because my enemies are there. But God, you're absent. And when you're absent and my enemies are present, there is no greater recipe for disaster. He's being honest and vulnerable with God. This is how I feel what's really happening. This is my situation. It's lamenting is a sincere supplication. But by sincere, I also mean genuinely looking to God to actually do something about where you're at, to actually intervene. This is asking God to help. Verse 3 at the beginning, he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. David's not just speaking for himself. He's not just venting. He's not just um, wanting some therapeutic time of just talking out loud where he can talk to his, his pet or his, his lava lamp or God. It doesn't matter. No, he's saying, I'm asking God for help. He's going to God. Which leads to the second word I want to clarify in this definition. Lamenting is the sincere supplication of a desperate person. It's supplication. To supplicate means just to ask. It's a prayer. You're asking God for help to do something. And here I mean, by supplication, I mean the truly humble and reverent God-directed prayers. Your sincere supplication should be full of reality and vulnerability, right? Yes, but it should be humble. It should be real and raw, right? Yes, but reverent, because you know to whom it is you're talking. You're directing your prayers to God. God-directed prayers. Look at verse 1. How long, O Lord, he says. It's the covenant name of Yahweh. Verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He's talking to God. Verse 6, he says, I will sing to the Lord. My response, my, is my issues and my situation, my circumstances, my entire life is directly related to you, God. So I'm going to you in prayer. He's asking God to help him by grace. You notice he's asking God here for help. He's asking God because he knows that he doesn't deserve it. He's coming to God because he says, I can't fix it on my own. I'm in need of help. But it's only by your mercy, it's only by your grace that you will help me at all. We see in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is the word hesed. Could be translated faithful mercy. The covenant kindness of God. The promised grace of God. It's not not earned, it's not deserved, but it is needed. It is needed. 
And so, in this prayer here, he's also being desperate. By desperate, I mean, well, you know what I mean, don't you? You know what it is to be desperate. You know that's the time when you and your situation require divine intervention. And nothing less will do. You feel it. And so you earnestly desire and seek for God to act by His grace. Look at verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He says, lest, lest, lest. He's saying, God, if you don't help, if you don't come to my rescue, it's over. I'm done. I am such in a desperate situation, God, that I am going down deeper and deeper into the darkness and you must come and raise me up. If you don't, it's over. It's over for me. Verses 1 and 2 is the questioning cry, the long sufferer. Then verses 3 and 4 is the fearful prayer of the desperate. But do you see here what he's desperate for? Look a little closer at verse 3. When God finally takes notice of him and answers him, what does he want him to do? Does he want him to fix the situation? Surely. But that's actually not what he asks for. He says, this is his only request in the entire psalm. Light up my eyes. Light up my eyes. When you are in deep despair, your eyes get dark. Your heart is heavy. Your knees are weak. And he's praying for God to comfort him. God, even if you don't fix my situation right now, come and fix me. Comfort me. God, would you comfort my heart? Would you brighten my face? Would you strengthen my knees and lift my hands and light up my eyes? Return to me the joy of your presence. He's asking to rejoice. But what's amazing about that is he's asking to rejoice even in the midst of his sorrow and his struggle. He's desperate. Not only for his situation to be fixed, but his, for his heart to be focused and comforted and rejoicing in the Lord. God, if you don't come and help me and light up my eyes, I won't recover. I will sleep the sleep of death. Lamenting is worshiping God by fighting for faith and by pursuing joy. That's what lamenting is. And he's asking God to help by grace here, but now this time it's by grace through faith. It's through faith. You can see that his faith is there because he's not only fighting for faith, but from faith. Because you don't go to somebody and ask for help unless you believe they actually hear you. You don't go to somebody and ask for help unless you believe they're capable of doing something. You don't go to somebody and ask for help unless you believe that they have the character and the willingness of heart to maybe possibly bless you with it. He's going as he's fighting for faith. He's also fighting from faith. And he says in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is a kind of phrase that's a timelessness to this word. A timelessness here. He's saying that I have always trusted in your steadfast love. This is just who I am. I am one who trusts you. I am a believer in you. My faith is placed in you. But we all know that faith is only as good as its object. Faith is only as secure as the one that you're and the thing that you're placing it in. A couple weeks ago, Ethan, my oldest, and I were up in our attic trying to fix a light. 
And I kept on reminding him over and over again, probably annoyingly so, don't step on the drywall. Just the rafters, please. Just the two-by-fours. That will hold you. The two-by-four, uh, the, the, the drywall will not. But let's just say he says, okay, but dad, I really, really believe that it will hold me. See, watch. And jumps around the drywall. What happens? It goes right through. It doesn't matter how strong his faith is. It matters how strong the thing he's trusting in is. Beloved, your faith can be weak as long as your Savior is strong. Put it in him. Faith in him who is steadfast in love. You will never err. You will never be ashamed. Faith in him who is steadfast in his love. Faith in him who is unwavering and unending in his goodness. Faith in him who is enduring and everlasting in his grace. Faith in him who is strong and sure in all of his promises for his people. There is no greater faith. Because there is no greater object of faith. There's no greater one in whom to trust but God and his steadfast love. I love that. It's his faithful mercy. It's continual and constant care and kindness and love for us. Yes, even when we are in the midst of struggle and sorrow. The moon is always round, even when we don't see it. His love is always there, even when we don't feel it. His love is steadfast. And so what he says is, I know, therefore, that I will be delivered. My heart, he says in verse 5, shall rejoice in your salvation. It will happen, and I will sing to the Lord. I will, I will sing a song to you. If verses 1 and 2 are, 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 are the, uh, the questioning cry of the long sufferer, and verses 3 and 4 is the fearful prayer of the desperate, then verses 5 and 6 is the confident song of the hopeful. What's beautiful is that this is all the same person at the same time. They can be mingled together, you know. Because in this he says, because I believe you, I have trust you, I have always trusted you in your steadfast love, I know that I will rejoice and I will sing to you because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the perfect tense of the Hebrew verb here. It's the perfect of certainty, as one scholar has put it. The perfect of certainty. It hasn't happened yet, but it is as good as done. He's still in his terrible situation. It is still dark, but God has lighted up his eyes, and he says, I know that he will deal bountifully with me so I can say it's already happened. And because of this rock-solid hope, it leads him to abundant joy. He is sorrowful, yet as the Apostle Paul says, he is always rejoicing. Lamenting is the sincere supplication of the desperate person amid struggle and sorrow. But lamenting is not the absence of rejoicing. Just like sorrow is not the absence of joy. They can and should be mixed together. Lamenting is worshiping God by fighting for faith and pursuing joy. And yet, even though we may know this, we're still sometimes reluctant to lament. Not only because maybe we don't know what it means to lament, but number two, because we think lamenting is a sign of weakness and faithlessness. We think, well, if we lament, then it just shows us and other people that we're weak, and that we don't have strong enough faith in the Lord. But it is not weak to weep. It's not. It is not a lack of moral or spiritual strength that makes you cry. It is sadness. And that's it. Jesus wept. 
Jesus wept. But it wasn't because he was lacking any moral or spiritual strength, was it? Not possible. Plus, sometimes we confuse emotional strength with what really is a calloused heart and a cynical spirit. If we face an experience in a situation that is sad, we should be sad. We should have tough skin, yes, but we need a tender heart, and it needs to be able to be reached. If we never cry, we never mourn, we never lament or grieve, we're not well, we're not whole, we're not healthy, and it doesn't honor the Lord. We worship Him, and we fight for faith and pursue joy in Him, and that often comes by lamenting. And it is not faithlessness that leads us to sorrow. It's not faithlessness. Remember, it is from faith that we actually pursue God. What leads us to sorrow is the presence of pain and struggles. It's loss and loneliness. That leads us to sorrow. But we often think, if one is really mature and godly and secure in their faith, then they will never be sorrowful. But that's not true. Nothing actually can be further from the truth because if one is mature and godly and secure in their faith, they will lament the best. They will lament the best. And no, don't let this lie come into your mind either that lamenting could lead to faithlessness. Well, if I start saying out loud to God that I'm, I, I really don't like this situation, God, I hate that this is like this and I want this to be different, and, and God, I, I'm really struggling with this and it feels like this, then maybe that will start weakening my faith in the Lord. It's just the opposite because lamenting is fighting for faith. It doesn't make you weak in faith. It strengthens it. And yet hearing all this, and maybe agreeing to all this, we still may be reluctant to lament. Because the third reason why we are so uncomfortable and reluctant to lament is because we confuse lamenting for whining and wallowing in self-pity. And we know that giving in to self-pity and whining and complaining is not good. And so we think they're the same, and so we count it maybe even as sinful to lament. But while whining and wallowing in self-pity do acknowledge and express pain and grief over our hurts and our struggles, just like lamenting, there are still some major differences, and they are key. One of the differences between godly lament and ungodly complaining is the difference of direction. Remember, in godly lament, you are humbly, sincerely supplicating, praying to God. You're directing your prayers to God. You're not, just, you're not just speaking out loud. You're not just whining and complaining about it. You're asking God for help. You're going to the Lord. A second major difference between this godly lamenting and this sinful self-pity is that with self-pity there is nearly an all-consuming focus on yourself. To the exclusion of other people, to the unjust comparison of their issues, their struggles, so that if somebody else has it bad, well, you have it worse. Yeah, but they're going through this and you're not. Yeah, 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 but they have this going for them and I don't. You can always find a way to paint your picture as darker than anyone else's. That's self-pity. That's not lamenting. Another difference between godly lamenting and worldly whining is your outlook. You know, when you remember the past and you look to the future, what do you see? 
Is it, well, yeah, this bad thing and this bad thing and this terrible circumstance and this bad situation that happened? Or is it, you know what, probably more of the same and it's uncertain and it, and it could be this and it's possibly this and all the potential negatives? Is that what you see? Or perhaps you can't see further beyond your own situation right in front of you. I know that's hard. But godly lamenting fights to remember the past with, and to look to the future with reality. God has been gracious to me. He, he has been, I've trusted in his steadfast love, and he's kept his steadfast love over and over and over again. My, I have been blessed beyond all measure. Surely his goodness pursues me all the days of my life. God, your promises are glorious, and they're secure. They're so hard to focus on, God. That's godly lament. And perhaps a, one last difference between godly lament and this worldly, sinful, whining, complaining, and wallowing in self-pity is our desires. You see, when you, godly, when, when you are godly lamenting, this is a, a desire for help, a desire for change. You want to be corrected even, maybe. You want to be comforted, even if you have to change and fight for it along the way. You ask questions, but you look for answers. But the opposite of that is what you, when you desire to stay where you're at. You see, there are many people who refuse to be comforted. You say, why would anybody refuse to be comforted? Perhaps they've made that their identity. That's who they are now. They're a victim. That's who they are. They are the one of sorrow. They define themselves by their tragedies and by their sins and by all their woes and not by God's blessings and His promises and who they are in Christ. It's consumed them. Or many people refuse to be comforted because they feel as if it would just minimize and downplay the seriousness of their hurts and of their loss if they were to at all allow their sorrow to lessen or be mixed with joy and hope. They can't do that because then I'll be minimizing the real pain that I have. But that's not true. It doesn't work that way. You can be full of sorrow and full of joy. And maybe many refuse to be comforted because they feel that maybe others will minimize their hurts and their loss if their sorrows lessen in any way or, or mix with joy and hope. And, and to be quite frank, they like the attention they get for their sorrow. They like when people come to them and say, Woe is you. How are you doing? They like the focus of the attention when others pity them. Maybe, and maybe some others refuse to be comforted because in order to be comforted, they actually have to fight for faith. They have to pursue joy. They have to strive for change. And they may have to humble themselves along the way. And it's hard. And I know it's hard. I know that it's difficult and challenging to even have the energy to pray. Sometimes the energy to pick up this book and read it, the spiritual focus and strength to show up here on a Sunday morning or to reach out to a friend and say, I need to meet. That's hard sometimes. But beloved, we must learn to lament. Because if we don't, it will breed faithlessness. Embittered complaining, worldly whining, this self-pity wallowing will result 
and more pain, not only for you, but for everyone around you, and it dishonors the Lord. If you are in the, uh, in the midst of your struggles and your sorrows and you don't reach out to the Lord, you don't call out to Him, you're not talking to Him, you're not reminding yourself of His, of his great promises and of his, his great blessings He's already given you and the reality of who you are in Him now. And, and if you refuse to be reminded by others, that's huge. You cannot refuse to let others remind you. Because if you do, if you never fight for faith and pursue joy by lamenting, then most assuredly you will give in to one of the following things. You will whine and complain and become a disgruntled, angry, bitter person. Or you will weaken your faith in and shift your focus off of the Lord. You will fixate upon yourself and no one else gets in. Or you will diminish your ability to rejoice and be thankful for what God is giving you right now. You will minimize your ability to bless others, to serve others, to help others because you don't even really see them in their problems. Once, once all my problems get fixed, then I will help and bless and serve. Or you will become so calloused and unfeeling toward God and others that you can't possibly have compassion and you can't really love Him. We must learn to lament in order to fight for faith and pursue joy. We must learn to lament. That's how we worship God. But it's not just about us, as I said. We must help others learn to lament. Remember, David was not just fighting for his own faith and pursuing his own joy in this. He was fighting for the faith of and pursuing the joy of others by wanting to help them to lament. And that's something we can emulate. and something we should. When others are amid struggle and sorrow, we can help them to lament. But how? How do we do that? How do we come alongside other people and actually help them to embrace their sadness and to lament? Let me give you three reasons, number, uh, three ways. Number one, if you want to help people lament, let them lament. Allow them to do it. Give them space to be sad. Don't always be telling them, oh, cheer up, it's fine, everything's great. It's not. I hate going to funerals. Now, many of you say, uh, don't most people? But let me explain. It's not death that bothers me at funerals. I hate death, yes, but going to funerals, there's something sobering, even healthy, about contemplating death. And I don't mind that. No, the dead people at funerals don't bother me. It's all the living people that you have to comfort, that are grieving. And I'm uncomfortable when they're lamenting. When they're sorrowful, I don't know what to say. I don't enjoy that. If we're uncomfortable to lamenting because we'll make other people uncomfortable, that's what we're afraid of, or we're afraid to be around other people who are sorrowful and lamenting because we might be uncomfortable, just know that's not a might. It will happen. <laughs> it will make other people uncomfortable. You will be uncomfortable when others are sorrowful. That's just a reality. But it doesn't mean it's a bad reality. It's not necessarily unloving to make somebody feel uncomfortable. It's not necessarily bad for you when you're uncomfortable. If it makes you uncomfortable when others lament, love them anyway and let them lament. Let them be in their sorrow. Number two, if you want to help people lament, lament with them. Romans 12.15 says, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. We should lament with those who lament. Sometimes that means just going and sitting with them and telling them, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. 
Sometimes it means giving them a hug or writing them a note. Sometimes it means telling them, I'm so sorry. I hate this for you. My heart is breaking over your situation, and I wish I could fix it, but I can't. I don't understand it all. I don't know what God's doing, and I'm sorry. Lament with them. And thirdly, if you want to help people lament, then shape their lament. Help shape and direct their sorrows to God. You can do this by modeling it for them. When you are sorrowful, when things, when you're struggling in life and things aren't going well for you, lament. That it might make up people uncomfortable, but it also helps them. It helps them to learn to do it. Don't just whine. Lament to God. If you want to shape their lament, pray for them. Ask God to help them. Ask God to, to keep their faith, to strengthen them through it. And then sometimes pray over them, aloud with them. God, we so desperately want this to change. We, we want things to be different. We're asking you for help. God, we, we know that your love is steadfast and we can trust you. And we do. Oh, but help our unbelief. Pray that way with your beloved, with your friends, with your family. Shape their lament. And thirdly, if you want to help them lament by shaping their lament, and sometimes at the right time, in the right way, with the right heart, remind them and maybe teach them of God's steadfast love. And that's key. In the right way, in the right time, and with the right heart, remind them of God's promises. Remind them of his blessings. Remind them of the truth that they know, but it's so easy to forget and to not focus on in times of struggle. And even when you do it the best way possible, from the, from the best possible heart, it still might make other people upset or bothersome. When their eyes are dark and you shine light, it can be uncomfortable, even when they need the light. But that's okay. It might hurt, but it doesn't harm them. It's for their good. Be a good friend. Remind people of the truth when they need it. Remind them of God's love, His goodness, His constant, faithful, steadfast mercy in all of His promises. In order to worship, by fighting for faith and pursuing joy, we must learn to lament. We need to lament and we need to help others lament for the good of our souls and the glory of God. And did you know this is exactly what Jesus did? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And he directed his, his, his sincere supplication with loud cries and tears from a desperate heart amid struggle and sorrow. He directed them to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus lamented. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he lamented to God. We should follow his example, follow in his steps. But I love the fact that his lamenting is not just an example for us to follow. It is also, is beautifully so, his lamenting means our salvation. It's our hope. We find hope in the midst of every struggle and every trial because Jesus was a man of sorrows and lamented. There was another psalm, a psalm of David, Psalm 22, that Jesus quoted on the cross. In Mark 15, 34, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? The questioning cry of one who has been suffering long. God, why? The answer to that question comes 
in this communion meal and the promises given in it. But the communion promises are only for those who are trusting in Jesus, who have their faith in the steadfast love of God secured by Jesus. So this morning, if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, then this communion meal and these communion promises are not yet yours. When others come up to partake of communion in just a moment, I'm going to urge you to stay where you are and to pray. Bow your head and ask the Lord to open your eyes to your desperate condition and to the reality that only Jesus can give you hope. And without him, there will be no light for your eyes, no strength for your hands or your knees, and you will sleep the sleep of death and worse. But with Jesus, there is abundant hope. There is the promise that he will deal bountifully with you. There is the promise that he will be with you. There is the promise that the Father's face is ever toward you. So for you, if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, and your faith has been affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church, then in just a moment I urge you to exit to your left and come up to one of these tables to grab the communion elements. On the far left, there's some gluten-free, and then you can take these elements that represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that was broken and poured out for sinners. And go back to the right to your seats and take them, even if you are lamenting this morning. Let it be worship. Let God comfort you and light up your eyes. Let it be that your sorrow is mixed with joy and hope because his promises are that when you feel like God has hidden his face from you, you know that it's not true. Because he has favored you. He does approve of you. You are his in Christ forevermore. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Jesus asked. And the answer is because, and so that, I will never forsake them. He was forsaken so that we won't be. His promise of communion is that he will be with us. There is a real spiritual presence of Christ with us when we partake of communion by his Spirit. He is here to bless us, to strengthen our faith, to focus us, and to renew our joy in Him. And the communion promise is that He is surely coming. Jesus says, I am surely coming to deal bountifully with you forevermore. And it is as good as done. This is a rock-solid hope we have in Christ. For now and forever. For those of you who should come to partake of communion, I invite you now to do so.